Welcome to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be Dr. Craig Stump, who we had on talking about low T, low testosterone in men. He's an endocrinologist from Tucson, Arizona, and today we'll be talking about fasting. Good for the soul, but is it good for the body? But first, let's look at some recent medical news. You know, we're trying to go back and uh, set the table for this interview on intermittent fasting, which has become a thing in the last, uh, well, less than than 10 years. It probably started in 2012 with a a TV documentary done um, by journalist Michael Mosley on the BBC Across the Pond in the UK. He wrote a book called Eat Fast and Live Longer and another book, The Fast Diet. And then somebody else wrote a book called The Five diet, and then Dr. Jason Fung's bestseller, The Obesity Code. So there's been a lot of buzz about this. I have a feeling there might be a market for weight loss out there. I think there is, but <laughs> we may need more data. I mean, I meet very few people here in Indiana who want to lose weight. That's a lie. Okay. Uh, so in these books, they talk about, you know, a 12-hour fast. I mean, most people wouldn't consider fast versus a certain 16-hour fast. That would be, you know, every day. And, you know, in one study, it showed that even going four hours longer without food, that is eating all your food within an eight-hour window each day versus within a 12-hour window, it lowered people's insulin levels, lowered their blood pressure, and significantly decreased their appetite. And that these benefits occurred even if there wasn't weight loss. So it reduced people's chances of type 2 or adult onset diabetes. But did they really have a lower appetite if they didn't lose weight? Uh, that's a good question for if our... If a tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound? If a man makes a mistake in a forest and there's no woman there to catch him, <laughs> is he still wrong? <laughs> Andrea? Andrea's just laughing. I think my wife would nod yes. But so metabolic expert Dr. Deborah Wexler at Mass General Diabetes Center says, quote, there is evidence to suggest that circadian rhythm fasting... I don't know what this has to do with... Um, insects. But circadian rhythm fasting, (laughs) uh, where meals are restricted to an 8 to 10 hour window during the daytime, is effective. Effective sometimes for weight loss, but more often for metabolic gain. Now, if we go to Google Trends, which I discovered last year. Yes, I'm an old guy, but I finally discovered Google Trends. It will tell you how much different terms have been searched throughout history. I don't know how they get the pre-computer history of searches, but They do that, too. But anyway, searches for intermittent fasting have increased tenfold in the last five years, or at least since the end of December 2014. And the last two complete months before taping of January and February 2019, there has been the most searches ever. So if you think about it, when do you use the term fast most commonly in your daily conversation? Hmm. It's with another syllable. Breakfast. So breakfast really means to break your fast. That's how it got the name. But now with, uh, you know, late night through the night um, snacking, breakfast isn't really a thing. So I looked on those two bastions of medical uh, reliable information, the New York Times and the Washington Post. Both have posted articles within the last year of whether skipping breakfast is bad for you. And it comes up One to one. So if you live in Washington, D.C., don't skip your breakfast. It's a bad thing. If you live in New York, it's okay to skip your breakfast. It's not a bad thing. So this is another question we'll have for our guest today. There's definitely a lot of information out there. And this kind of highlights something we were talking about off air is, you know, when you go online and you're looking for something, especially something that's trendy, something that's getting the most Google searches ever, um, you're going to be able to find both sides of the answer. So how do you sort out what's right and what's wrong, what's true, what's false? You try to get an expert who doesn't have a a dog or a pony in the race, which uh, we believe Dr. Stump is that kind of person. So what types of fasts are there? Well, the most common one that's done, and probably the easiest one to start with, is the 16-8 fast. That means you eat all of your food within an eight-hour window. And when I read about this, I said, that was me in college. I, I almost never ate breakfast. I think in two years in the dorm, I went down twice for breakfast. Probably because you were up late studying, sleeping in. I, I would close the library every night at 11.45 p.m., get into my bunk at midnight, wake up at 7.30, and I'd be at my eight o'clock class. Yeah, and I no wasn't, time. Yeah, I, I wasn't hungry until... Um, 
until lunchtime. So I realized I did that for years. But the eight-hour window suggests they're anywhere between 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. each day, or as I've been doing in preparation for this show to try to identify with those of you who are doing it and want to, from about 12 noon to 8 p.m. each day. It's, it's simple. It's the most sustainable to easiest to stick to. Now then, they talk about the five too fast as the most scientific support. There's a lot of ratios here. There are. Ratio is a thing when there is a colon between two numbers. So this is in the book, the fast diet. So five days just to eat normally. Then two days a week, you eat less than 500 calories per day. And then I realized this is what I did for a couple years of medical school. Because back then, Medjugorje was a big thing. And those who were following the supposed apparitions of Medjugorje were uh, recommended to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. So on Wednesdays and Fridays, I'd go to medical school and pack two pieces of bread and did bread and water fast two days a week. Wow. That was harder, I can tell you, than the 16-8 fast. Uh, then there's the eat Stop, eat fast. Now, <laughs> you could make the stop as long or short as you want. <laughs> Isn't but that you, just regular? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Although I know some people who say they eat one meal a day and it starts when they wake up and it ends when they go to bed. Um, I, I had some friends like that that got kicked out of the buffet. Thought, <laughs> this is still the same meal. <laughs> yeah, they, they just do all their homework there. So that means you fast 24 hours once or twice a week, which means from dinner one day to dinner the next or breakfast one day to breakfast the next, you eat nothing. And then a once a week 36-hour fast, which means you have dinner today and you don't eat until breakfast uh, the second day after, about 36 hours later. Now, along with this, uh, most religions in some way promote fasting. So I, want, I know Dr. Stump has some ideas um, on that. But there's this whole long list of potential benefits of fasting. You know, it can increase weight loss and increase fat burning. And, and the best thing I found for motivation while doing this, because I have to tell you, usually between 10 and noon each day in the morning, that's when I start to get hungry. It says, just imagine you are eating a meal of your own fat. You know, that, just lean into that. Wow. Yeah, you're eating a meal of I your I thought you were going to say, you know, this is Lent, so time, <laughs> time for the Catholic diet, right? It, it, it is Lent. For all Lent. you fasters out there. But, you know, I have friends who are monks, and every day they follow up the Benedictine rule, and they usually don't eat each day till supper or maybe a small snack at lunch. You know, when they stay with them, they never eat breakfast. They might bring out something for guests, but they never eat breakfast. Huh. Yes, so usually they'll have one or two meals a day, and that's it. Man. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then that, that kind of highlights, I mean, we've gone through like five different types of fast. What is a faster to do? Uh, but at the same time, I guess it depends on the purpose, because one of the things that I, I always try and think about when counseling people about weight management is, isn't there an element of this that is just an accounting problem Energy in, energy out, <laughs> yes. balancing the budget. You want your checkbook in the black. You want your calories in the red if you're trying to lose weight. Exactly. And so how do you get it? Does that make a big difference? Well, and that's what we're going to talk to Dr. Stump about. But it says other things, and I guess one of the most proven ones perhaps, is lower insulin levels and blood sugar levels, which is good to prevent or reverse certain types of diabetes. But it even talks about preventing uh, Alzheimer's disease or reducing it. And, uh, you know, increasing your energy, reducing inflammation in the body, possibly longer life. It definitely simplifies life or is what people have referred to as a life hack. You know, something that uh, uh, reduces time so that you can get more done. You know, so I've actually, since I'm not eating breakfast the last 10 days, I'm praying longer in the morning. And I'm not rushed when I'm getting ready to go to work. And I'm actually getting to work a little early and getting started earlier on my patients. So as a life hack, that has been working for me. Hmm. So, well, we're going to be back uh, in just a few minutes after the break with uh, Dr. Craig Stump. Um, and he's going to talk to us about intermittent fasting. But first, uh, we have a question. My question is, for our medical trivia question of the day, let's bring in the music. What is the longest period of time recorded that someone has ever fasted from food? They still may have had water or vitamin supplements, but what is the longest period of time recorded that someone has ever fasted from food? 
Is it 40 days? In the Jesus desert. in the desert. <laughs> is it 80 days? 120 days? 160 days? Or possibly even over 200 days? Oh my. We'll have this toward the end of the show, but until then, we are Dr. Doctor, and we'll be back after the break. And we're back on Dr. Doctor with today's guest, Dr. Craig Stump. He comes to us for his second guest interview. Last time we had him on about low testosterone in men. He's an endocrinologist. He's on staff both at the Southern Arizona VA Hospital in Tucson and also at the University of Arizona. Uh, Craig, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. You bet as we say in Upper Michigan and Minnesota. Our topic is intermittent fasting. So it'd probably be a good idea to describe, you know, what is fasting and where do we cross the line between not eating between meals and fasting? Yeah, I mean, fasting has been with us as long as we've had recorded history, I think. And sometimes it's voluntary and intentional, and sometimes it's not intentional, but generally from a physiological point of view, uh, we tend to think of fasting as beginning after a feeding in which uh, uh, most of the nutrients have been absorbed from the uh, gastrointestinal tract, and uh, therefore we're getting into a period that we call post-absorptive, or in other words, there's no more nutrients to be gained from from uh, absorption, and then we have to rely on uh, nutrients that have been stored uh, oh. from previous feedings. So at that point, I think, is when the very beginning of fasting occurs. That's usually about four or five hours after a meal, depending on the size of the meal and how well your uh, stomach tends to empty, but that's generally what we consider to be the beginning of the fasting period is about four hours. And then, it, you know, then we rely on storage of uh, carbohydrate in our, from our, in our muscles and our liver, and that can go for several hours longer, and certainly overnight, it, it usually can get us through that period. How long does it take before it goes to using fat? Well, you know, it's not an on-off switch, and so it's transitioning from fat, but uh, I would say uh, after about 8 or 10 hours or so, then most of the carbohydrate stores have been uh, depleted, and then we're more reliant on uh, fat metabolism, and uh, of course, the body can also make carbohydrate, make sugar from amino acids. So then that transition starts happening at about the same time, too, because, you know, fat is metabolized generally a little more efficiently if there's a little bit of carbohydrate around as well. So uh, as we deplete our stores of carbohydrate, the body adapts. It starts using amino acids uh, and lactate to make uh, some sugar to help uh, um, burn the fat. But, you know, that's that's a limited process as well. So there's several phases. So that would be the next phase after the, you know, the, po- the, the feeding, the post-absorptive, then using the stored carbohydrate, and then transitioning to making uh, carbohydrate. How, how does fasting differ from starvation? Well, I think, uh, again, that, that transition starts to take place as the body seems to determine that that uh, there's no more food uh, to be gained anytime soon, and uh, it interprets the signals of of uh, prolonged starting to break down these proteins, and and uh, the body has some kind of built-in protective mechanism that says, you know, we can't can't keep doing this uh, indefinitely. So it transitions away from using proteins, trying to protect the lean tissues in the body, and starts using ketones, which is another word that tends to come up in these diet discussions, which is a different way of using fat for fuel that doesn't require carbohydrate. So that, that usually happens after two or three days of with no food, the, the body will start to try to preserve as best it can the lean critical tissues and convert to ketones. And I think that would be a good place to start thinking of it in terms of starvation. 
I have already learned more than I thought I was going to in this interview. So I'm just ready to go home. But because <laughs> okay, we care about yeah. our listeners, this has been wonderful. Yeah. I love the answers. We haven't like even this. talked about. We haven't even talked about food yet. Okay. No, this is this is beautiful. I mean, you've given us some good um, ideas of when we shift from uh, fed state to you know a fasting state, and then when we've gone too far and we start using up our our protein. So this is great. So. Uh, really, the body is into fasting mode of, of not using carbs after 8 to 10 hours. But it starts into some fasting stuff even as early as 4 to 5 hours. So this is wonderful. So what what else is happening in the body? You've, you told us what's happening with food as we're using it for fuel. Are there things going on with hormones? Like the, the one I would think of first is what is it that gives us the sensation of hunger? Yeah, in a Hunger and appetite are very complex uh, systems. There's, there's brain chemicals. There's chemicals from our intestinal tract that feed back to the brain. Uh, there are habits that we've formed and, and maybe even kind of semi-addictions that are formed. So that's, that's a very complex process. And as you know, and most of us know, different people seem to respond differently to the absence of food. Uh, some people seem like they're hungry all the time, and other people you're amazed that that uh, they can go so long without thinking about eating. So, well, I've got uh, two friends yeah. married to each other who practice OMAD. Have you heard of OMAD? No, I'm not familiar. I with just that. learned about this this weekend from a fourth year medical student going into surgery. OMAD stands for one meal a day, and this uh. friend of mine. Uh, said, how how likely was it that I would meet and marry a woman who also only eats one meal a day? <laughs> I'm like, uh-huh. it's got to be yeah. low. I, mean, I don't know how people <laughs> live like that. And, and it's not eating from sunrise to sunset. It's one meal a day. I mean, yeah. so are they truly wired differently? Yeah, it seems to be the case. And, and I think, you know, because humans are so variable and they develop different habits and uh, have different preferences. This makes it very difficult to study humans and to draw general uh, uh, recommendations and conclusions about the way humans uh, uh, operate, you know, because some people uh, can't live without breakfast and other people uh, could, could care less whether they have breakfast or actually are revolted by the idea of having to eat breakfast. So, you know, and then one meal a day versus uh, we have patients that are, you know, what we call grazers that they just nibble all day long and they never really eat a meal. And so that presents some challenges uh, to us endocrinologists who are oftentimes trying to treat their their diabetes because people have very different feeding patterns. Well, and Craig, this this begs the question to me. I mean, for, for our listeners, a lot of times folks would be interested in fasting either for, for weight loss or the health benefits, even apart from the spiritual aspect yeah. of fasting. Out of all these different behavioral patterns, is there evidence to suggest something is better than another? Well, well you know, if you're talking about animal studies, you know, there have been quite a few because obviously it's a lot easier to have an animal eat in a certain pattern uh, when you're providing the food than humans. So to do human research is a very complex undertaking. And uh, again, if you are uh, doing what we call observational type studies in which you take a group of people and you observe what they do, some people are early eaters, some people are late eaters, some people are early risers, late to bed, all these kind of things, different patterns of lifestyle, there does tend to be some some indication that people that consume their calories earlier and wake earlier and go to bed earlier and don't prolong their eating into the night, that they tend to be more metabolically healthy. But on the other hand, that doesn't necessarily mean that changing somebody from an a night person to a morning person is going to improve their metabolism. Yeah, that is that is that a causation or correlation? Yeah. Right? Is that yeah, just a someone exactly. who might be more disciplined in other areas of their life for yes. getting up early? So it's really hard to draw those types of conclusions. Is and it's probably exactly why you can see 
uh, news flashes or stories with seemingly contradictory evidence or reports, uh, it has a lot to do with this observational type uh, research in which we're just trying to see what people do and who ends up the healthiest at the end. Uh, and as, as most people, at least in the medical field, realize that that's, you know, that's evidence that is informative, but it doesn't necessarily prove that one thing leads to another. Well, and one, one thing that I've experienced talking to patients, especially, you know, I, I'm a family doctor, so I get to care for folks at different ages. And sometimes I, I'd be impressed by someone's general health, especially as they're getting older, 60s and 70s and stuff like that. And um, I'd, I'd say to them, so what, what have you done to stay healthy or maintain a good BMI or something to that effect? Mm. And I'm surprised by the number of people who say, I've never really thought about it. <laughs> as, as opposed yeah. to people, we know 80% of Americans are overweight, and it's whether they, they choose to do something or not at different times, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that are thinking about it. So that does, it begs the question to me, uh, in what way are people wired different, and, and what's the best advice to give people? Yeah, uh, that's definitely true. Now, I, I know I've mentioned this to you before in previous discussions, but but I really think that um, that the human body you know, has been uh, evolved or created or designed to uh, experience all different types of uh, conditions from from being fed to being fasted to being semi-starved, and that uh, it's kind of ingrained into the metabolic metabolism of humans to expect these kind of changes. And uh, with our modern society, um, that oftentimes is completely uh, circumvented because food is so readily available everywhere, every hour of the day. So um, this gets into a concept I'd mentioned uh, called metabolic flexibility, in which the uh, body or or an individual uh, is more metabolically healthy if they do experience the, the complete range of conditions instead of being in one condition all the time. So always fasting might be as bad as always eating. Yeah. Right. Obviously, I mean, depending on how you define fasting, you can only go so long being right. under undernourished. But on the other hand, if you're always fed and you never go through those cycles of the four hours, the eight hours, or maybe even a day once in a while in which uh, you kind of transition to these other metabolic pathways uh, to rely on your nutrients that you're not uh, kind of exercising your full metabolism and uh, your body becomes sluggish and inefficient in using um, metabolites. Well, that's what I've noticed just the last 10 days of doing the 16-8 fast. I haven't felt bloated or tired or I've had more energy uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, some of the diet sites say you should eat a small amount of food like every three hours during the day. But yeah. is that doing something bad metabolically? Well, I, I can understand where some of those that advice comes from. Uh, you know, uh, people that give nutritional advice oftentimes are dealing with people with eating disorders or binge eating behaviors and whatnot, and they're trying to kind of uh-huh. circumvent uh, um, just self-destructive, you know, where you go yes. all day without eating and then you eat the whole barrel of ice cream all at yes. once kind yes. of thing. So I, I think there's a behavioral uh, basis behind those types of recommendations, but I really don't think that that's the way we were, uh, our bodies expect nutrients to come in. And, uh, and uh, it does uh, make you wonder whether uh, if, you're, if you're eating all the time like that, uh, do you really uh, fully use the metabolic pathways available to you, you know, to transition from carbohydrates to fats to a little bit of protein and back and forth and back and forth. I think that's the way the body expects to be, uh, uh, to see nutrients, and it operates best when it gets a little bit of uh, each of those uh, pathways at some time during the day or week. 
Well, I, I like the idea of the metabolic flexibility, and, and you've kind of introduced a new a new concept to me about exercising your metabolism. Yes. Just like, you know, oh. we try and exercise our mind, exercise our body, you know, athletically, but exercising the metabolism, it, it leads me to the question of, you know, there's so many of these diets. I mean, most of them have a, a book that they're trying to sell <laughs> behind them. Yes. Most of these diets, there's, ah, this new thing that we found, this new knowledge that uh, has escaped us for so long. And it's usually some form of extremism. You know, uh, fats are bad. Well, that's out of favor now. So now carbs are bad. We must avoid carbs. And then as long as you're not eating carbs, you can have as many fats as you want. Um, mm-hmm. And that's superior. Is, is there really wisdom in, you know, the, the middle of the road here uh, or just variation? Yeah, I mean, though, all those questions are being actively studied. And again, it's very difficult to answer that. I think uh, if you kind of think about the, uh, the way many, many, many generations of humans have eaten compared to the last couple generations, there's quite a bit of difference and, uh, you know, can you think of, of any, I, I mean, there are examples of certain cultures or whatever that have uh, uh, survived on pretty much one type of food. But in general, uh, food came and went. It was not always available. Uh, you ate what you found. Uh, it may be seasonal. Uh, so uh, I think that to, for the met- metabolism of the body to be fully engaged that, uh, these transitions are important and and if you're just uh, always in one uh kind of uh, slot and you never deviate from that i think it it tends to lead to problems and uh you know we lose this flexibility uh, to transition from one type of fuel to the other and that definitely is not uh, uh good for the metabolism it's been fairly well studied and even in humans that people that can transition from different fuels readily are the most metabolically healthy. In other words, they're less likely to have diabetes, they're less likely to have weight problems and and lipid problems and all these kind of things because they're able to transition between the different food sources uh, so well. Well, And And it's not just about, yeah, go ahead. They they do say um, variety is the spice of life. And and I think you've hit on something with the flexibility. We want to delve in more into that topic right after the break. Okay. So, uh, let me see. And we're back for another segment with uh, Dr. Craig Stump on Dr. Doctor talking about intermittent fasting. Speaking of the word fast, it's in a common word in our English lexicon, break fast or breakfast. So as we laid out at the beginning of the show, uh, some major media outlets differ on whether or not it's harmful to skip breakfast. What do you say, Craig? Yeah, that's been controversial, and of course, as you know, uh, you'll you'll see different uh, opinions that seem to be in direct conflict with each other. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, at some point, you always break your fast, so it's not so much whether you break your fast or not. I think the question is, you know, is it better to do it early in the morning or later in the morning or midday or wherever? So that's really the question. Um, you know, again, these are a lot of the data comes from observational studies in which, uh, say, for instance, children or uh, or uh, other students uh, uh, skip breakfast or eat breakfast, and they have some data to suggest that they perform better in school if they have breakfast. And uh, and other studies seem to suggest that people that eat breakfast tend to be less likely to become obese and have metabolic problems, but then again, uh, that may be a select group of people that just happen to be uh, destined for better better metabolic uh, um, uh, outcomes, and they just happen to be the people that eat breakfast. What we really don't know is if you had a group of people that didn't eat breakfast and you converted them to become breakfast eaters, whether that would uh, benefit them or not. So uh, that's a more difficult question. I know uh, when I so, did that between college and medical school, I gained weight. <laughs> so yeah, I went from not eating and, to eating breakfast. 
I felt more bloated and didn't feel as good. Yeah, and and people that are not breakfast eaters often give you a similar story as to why they don't eat breakfast. So I I don't know if it would be productive to pursue that uh, as a major uh, intervention for weight management uh, to either eat breakfast or skip breakfast. I think there is some, some at least uh, uh, logic in trying to keep your meals within a uh, period of the day that would be more like your active period of the day and try not to have it stretch out from early in the morning till midnight or beyond midnight so that you're eating, uh, you know, more hours than you're not. So what do you think would be a minimum time without food that would be healthy each day? A minimum time without food that would be healthy. I I think that the, the, the data... Uh, so far in in some preliminary type human studies seems to indicate that uh, people do fairly well and they can thrive and seem to have some metabolic benefits if they can uh, maintain their food intake between like eight and ten hours of the day so that uh, maybe so that would leave like 14 uh, to 16 uh, 14 to 16 hours where you're not really eating anything and you're going through that other phase of your metabolism that seems to be important for metabolic health. Thank you for not so, just waffling, but giving our listeners something concrete they can <laughs> sink their teeth into, so it's, to speak. It's so it's so tough to, to discern between all of the different recommendations. You know, and, and one of the things that, that I've been thinking about fasting, especially in this time of the year for, for Catholics and many Christians, we observe Lent, um, which is not yeah. just Catholic weight loss. Um, <laughs> but, you know, from from... Early on in the church, even before the time of Christ and in many religions, fasting is a part of religious exercise. And it, it got me thinking, you know, was this part of, like many, many things in uh, Mosaic law were health-related, you know, avoiding pork yes. because it's unclean and things of that nature. Is this mm-hmm. something along those lines where God was really just telling us what's healthy? or or That is, yeah. That's certainly an intriguing question, and uh, and not only just in Judaic uh, law and practices, but really most cultures throughout the world have some kind of fasting ritual or uh, fasting uh, um, habits that uh, uh, have been identified. So it seems to be kind of uh, hardwired or at least somehow uh, picked up um, in different cultures, and and it, it makes you wonder whether or not this is just the way that we are most healthy, and that that uh, by uh, God's uh, message to us that hey, you know this this is uh, not only good for your spiritual discipline and 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 also for a number of other reasons that you can read through Scripture, but but that this is the way I designed your body to uh, to expect to uh, to work in that there are periods of of uh, feeding and periods of restraint. So uh, and then uh, not only just different times of the day, but you know picking days throughout the week or weeks throughout the the year in which you really kind of double down on that. Does that have metabolic benefits? I I would not be surprised if that is is uh, you know substantiated someday. Can this reverse type two diabetes? I've seen some evidence in the literature that it can. What do you think, based on what you've seen? Yeah, uh, you know that that has a lot to do with how far along in your type two diabetes you are. Okay. I certainly, if you're pre-diabetic or just early diabetes and you haven't progress to multiple medications and that type of thing. I do think it, that practicing uh, these types of fasting periods, whether it's once or twice a week or, or uh, certain hours of the day where you strain from food, uh, I think the evidence is fairly clear that there are metabolic benefits. Whether or not you can actually reverse diabetes or not would probably depend on how rigorous you are in following it and how long you can stick with it, which is always the question for any diet 
uh, or plan is many of these work for a month or two or six <laughs> months even, but then they tend to to uh, um, uh, disappear or people uh, become weary of the of the routines, and, which is I think part of the uh, um, attractiveness of this uh, uh, intermittent intermittent fasting uh, is that people have the sense that they don't have to be um, uh, constantly on guard, you know, it's, it's periodic. They can get themselves ready for it and, and then tackle a day at a time or a couple days at a time or a few hours at a time. It seems to be a more um, doable uh, approach. So uh, whether or not it can be sustained for months or years or decades, uh, that hasn't been shown yet, but I think it has a better chance than some of these other uh, approaches that have been tried. Well, and Craig, that begs a question. We were talking about specific health things, diabetes being one, obesity being the elephant in the room, if you will. Um, 80% of Americans have a BMI greater than 25. That's most of us. And if if not all of us at different points in our life will struggle with, with weight. Um, is it as simple as a, a calculation where regardless of what types of food you eat, if you eat the right amount of calories, um, if you're in the black, so to speak, you're going to gain weight. If you're in the red, you're going to lose weight. Is it that simple or is it? Is it? I don't think it is that simple, but I think that that is the major component uh, is caloric intake and output. But there are other factors uh, in this in terms of uh, of like I've mentioned previously in this discussion about trying to get all metabolic systems firing and uh, also there's there's other things about palatability of food and and different foods that you're more likely to overeat uh, if they're really calorically dense and sugary or very high fat those types of things it's easier to put more calories into your body with certain foods than other foods so so definitely the calories are important but different types of food predispose us to either overeating or being more uh, um, efficient in, in choosing our, our uh, diet such that we do not go through these extreme hunger pangs and are more likely to, uh, to go off the rails at some point. You nailed it, Craig. For me, it's trail mix. Love it. Never fills me up, but tons of calories, so I have to stay away yeah, from and that. And hard, hard to count. Hard to, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So the, the, the money question for this whole interview probably for listeners is, do you think that intermittent fasting is a good weight loss strategy? Uh, I, I tend to think that it is a, if you're talking about uh, particularly the concept of limiting caloric intake, particularly maybe something like not eating after supper, um, having a prolonged period of fasting each day, I think that that's, almost certainly doing you some metabolic benefit. I don't know if it would result in much weight loss. I think weight loss would require more uh, caloric uh, intervention. On the other hand, uh, as anybody that's followed the dietary literature knows, that just paying attention to what you eat tends to cause help people lose weight. And so, uh, you, if you design a uh, clinical trial and the control group is just required to keep track of what they eat and they can eat whatever they want, a lot of times they just lose weight because they're paying attention. And so it, it, uh, it's, uh, it's partly um, being aware of what's going into your body and keeping track of it and being uh, um, engaged that can make a big difference. Well, so, we call that the uh, Hawthorne effect. The effect yeah. of measuring something changes the what is being measured. Yeah, which sometimes makes it difficult on investigators to sort things out. Um, but, but it is somewhat revealing about human nature that uh, if you're not paying attention, you're probably gaining weight. <laughs> Amen. I think you nailed that one, too. 
Now, here's a question I've never gotten to ask an endocrinologist, so here we have you, Craig, and that is, they talk about this metabolic set point, that everybody has this set point weight that there's almost nothing they can do to stay away from that weight. Is there any truth to that? Like, if you lose weight to get to a certain point, you're going to have to keep eating far less calories than you think you would to just stay level. Uh, there is some truth to that because the body does tend to try to protect a certain weight, it seems. Um, on the other hand, probably the best way to guard against that is to is to include physical activity in your routine as well because that uh, kind of keeps your uh, you know meta- metabolic uh, um, consumption and, and oxidation of fuels and and that type of thing going even when your body's trying to conserve and and uh, hunker down against further weight loss so um, Definitely, if your strategy is to just eat less food and uh, remain completely sedentary, you'll reach a certain plateau and you'll almost certainly have a very difficult time going beyond uh, a limited amount of weight loss. And so uh, the combination of maintaining a physically active uh, uh, lifestyle and uh, watching what you eat is the best way to avoid that kind of plateau or set point that seems to plague so many people trying to lose weight. And on that practical note, we'll end this segment of the conversation. We'll be back with a little more after the break. This is Dr. Doctor, the official radio show of the Catholic Medical Association, coming back to you after the break, and we are here with the answer to Tom's trivia question. And to recap, what is the longest period of time for which we have evidence that someone has ever fasted. Is it 40 days, like Jesus, 80 days, 120 days, 160 days, or is it over 200 days? Now, 40 days was an allegory, right? So it could have been longer. (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, 40 number is a biblical number of completeness. There are several such biblical numbers. But um, in this, the 1973 March issue of the Postgraduate Medical Journal has a 27-year-old male who started out weighing 456 pounds, and when his fast ended, he weighed 180 pounds, having lost 0.72 pounds per day. He fasted under medical supervision for 382 days. Over a year? Over a year. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's incredible. No food for And he year. maintained his weight loss after that. Wow. For years. Wow, that's even more amazing. Yes, yeah. it, yes, it is. And they were monitoring his uh, blood glucose. They were um, monitoring his responses to glucagon. Um, what What were they giving him to maintain any any kind of gluconeogenesis or anything like that? So well, he his fat. <laughs> gee whiz. His fat, his own body fat and protein. Apparently, yeah, he, he probably was operating mostly off of ketones there most of that time. So. Wouldn't That's, be surprised. But they said that his blood sugars, they, they were in the 30 milligram to 100 per 100 cc level. So that's hypoglycemia, isn't it, Craig? Yeah. But that, that would, be, would be cause symptoms in most people. Yeah, probably brain fog and stuff like that. He couldn't have felt. He couldn't have been studying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, this was. But a then again, I think people adapt to uh, ketones if they have to. Uh, if you uh, hear about some of these starvation kind of stories that people do, kind of get into a a phase where they lose their intense hunger and they get into a kind of almost a euphoric state. So. Uh, at least for a while. So, Craig, continuing on our our subject, what groups of people should not attempt intermittent fasting? Well, there there are some uh, um, probably kind of obvious ones. Uh, definitely, uh, anything around pregnancy, uh, attempting pregnancy, being pregnant, breastfeeding, anything like that is probably not a good time to adopt this type of. Uh, uh, of eating behavior. Uh, there are other people that, again, we touched on this before, maybe have had eating disorders yes. in the past. They would have to be monitored pretty carefully because they have a history of, of you know, taking things to extremes. 
So that would be another group. Um, a group that I'm very familiar with are people with diabetes who are using insulin. And um, it's very uh, difficult sometimes to match up their insulin to their to their feeding patterns uh, because we want insulin in their blood when there's food in their system, but we don't want it in their blood when they're not eating. So if we spend a lot of time trying to get people on a routine uh, so we can administer their medication appropriately. So that would be another group that would be very difficult to carry out. What about and children? Then there, yeah, children that are growing, definitely. Now, I would leave this to the pediatric endocrinologists. At what point of obesity would you consider this in children? That very would good. be a very interesting question and definitely probably wouldn't adopt this in, in a child that's maybe just slightly overweight or or normal weight, but maybe a very obese uh, child under medical supervision might be able to adopt something like this, but I certainly wouldn't try it on your own. No, and then, of course, yeah, go ahead. No, you can finish the list, and then I have another question. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, there are other people that are on certain medications like anticoagulants, maybe seizure medications, things like that, that, uh, you know, routine is kind of important for them, too. So if if you're on those types of medicines, I would check with your specialist before adopting a new diet. Yeah, I I was thinking the Malali kids practice intermittent fasting when dad makes dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and they all survived, so yeah. we'll, we'll see. You know, it, it actually, on this topic, one of the things that people talk about a lot is hunger pains. And frequently I've heard people recommend drinking non-calorie drinks such as coffee or tea to help with the hunger pains. Is that something you'd recommend? Is that a good thing to work into intermittent fasting? I think that that does make some sense, and, and at least anecdotally, uh, people uh, seem to respond to that and uh, the non-caloric drinks. Now, what as far as coffee and tea, I think those are probably good, and of course water, anytime water is usually uh, a good option, but the, uh, the more controversial topic would be uh, artificially sweetened beverages. Uh, there is contradictory data on that, some showing that it aids weight loss and others showing that it stimulates appetite. So that is something that uh, I would probably try to stay away from as, as a countermeasure to hunger pangs. What would be the safest way to start intermittent fasting if one of our listeners wanted to do that? Yeah, I think uh, the, the if I was going to recommend uh, somebody uh, give it a try, at least on a modest level. It would be something on the lines of uh, of after a relatively early supper, uh, earlier in the evening, then try not to eat until the next uh, breakfast would be a good place to start. And then uh, if they've mastered that, uh, then they can maybe try some of the other uh, maybe more severe uh, interventions, maybe one day a week or something with uh, a fasting-like diet, like maybe 500 calories or so. So I would go at it slow. You know, there, there, the more severe uh, intermittent fasting is like every other day fasting, and there's some literature on that, but I think that that would be hard to maintain, and I think that's what the studies have found, too, that people drop out of that uh, fairly readily. Craig, what, one of the things I'd like to do as we're approaching the close of the show is to kind of summarize key take-home points for our listeners. There's a few I've written down. One would be, trying to limit eating to about 8 to 10 hours a day and then fasting the balance of the day overnight and then kind of itemizing and counting what you eat would make you more self-aware and would probably lead to healthier outcomes even if you don't change your pattern that much. Um, we talked about the calorie-free drinks but not the artificial sweeteners. What what else would you recommend as general advice to people trying to be those, those are all great uh, take-home points. The other, which we didn't really have time to talk about much, is uh, the same way you look at uh, eating and uh, fasting, you should look at resting and physical activity as well. Long stretches of sedentary uh, behavior behind a computer screen or in front of a television or wherever is not good for metabolic health. So, you know, getting up and moving around uh, periodically several times a day, uh, you know, eat, some have uh, advised to do it before meals, some right after meals. I think either one of those is a good strategy uh, to help with, you know, getting keeping the metabolism going and not letting it settle into this uh, 
kind of destructive sedentary um, energy uh, slog that kind of people get into. Is there any website or other reference you could recommend for our listeners? Well, you know, I, I was anticipating that question, and like you, I went to many websites, and uh, they kind of alternate between uh, proponents of intermittent fasting, which is kind of gung-ho, you know, what could go wrong kind of thing, and everything's going to turn out great. And then the more medically oriented was that, well, we don't have evidence to suggest that this is a good way of losing weight, therefore we're not recommending it. So, you know, those are two kind of opposite advice. But I, I did identify a, a site at www.healthline.com, and they have a segment in there, and it's called Intermittent Fasting 101, that I thought was fair, and it gave some of the uh, pros and cons and options that can be done without being too uh you know, promotional or uh, pessimistic. But again, like you said, you can find hundreds of uh, sites that uh, vary all over. I just thought that that was a reasonably balanced approach. Craig, you have been fantastic once again on the show, full of practical insight, balance. I love it. Thank you for being on Dr. Doctor. Okay, it's fun, yep. Hey, and thank you listeners for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from our beloved studios here at Redeemer Radio. And we're not only a radio show, we are a podcast. Please, if you have friends, ask one this week to start listening to our podcast. If you want more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing medical mysteries and mysteries in fiction, especially related to Sherlock Holmes with Dr. Barbara Golder. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at redeemerradio.com doctor.